listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Stradella. Hello, my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Jancis Robinson and Oz Clark. God. Don't know which is which. I think that Brian looks a bit more like Oz, Oz <laughs> well, Clark in some respects. I prefer being Jancis. He's a big hero of mine. Well, you can fight it out between yourselves. Daniel Freib and Brian Nygaard, also known as. Brian, uh, our Danish friend who joined us last night. Brian, speaking about Danish the in the car today, felt was like I was in an episode of Borgen there, Brian. It's good quite nice. A f- good friend of mine is actually on, in the lineup, and, but I've never seen it. I think I'd, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an accent that I think I could probably fall asleep to. Um, I know you have sleep problems. I'm having sleep problems at the moment. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Um, anyway, moving on. Richard, location, location, location. Where are we? Well, that's my question. Where are we? <laughs> well, we are in one of the most beautiful piazzas in Italy that m- almost no one outside of Italy has probably heard of, um, the town Vigevano. And this is a very famous piazza in this region, um, the Piazza Ducale. It was built by the Sforza family who, were, who ruled Milan for about 100 years. And Vigevano was, well, it was earmarked by the Sforza family for their hunting lodge back in the 15th century. And they built this gorgeous arcaded um, piazza, sort of a stri- well, an unusual shape for a piazza. It's oblong, I think 150 meters w- um, long, I just read. And um, I think about 50 meters wide. So it's quite long and narrow with a beautiful Duomo at the end and arcaded on three sides. And what a sight it is. Well, it's beautiful, isn't it? Because the sun is just lighting up the facade in front of us and it's uh, very beautiful indeed and we're in a quite a lively bar lively terrace you chaps pick the li- the liveliest busiest bar and um, but hopefully that just creates a gentle hubbub of noise in the podcast nothing too intrusive and um, we saw what we call today a transitional stage chaps the longest stage of the race but a real a proper Giro d'Italia stage again um you know we were we were in amongst the vineyards the as was the case yesterday it the Giro was luminescent today um, uh, as was my face first thing this morning Daniel but we'll come to that later um, we had a, a, oh, rude, yes, yes. a rude we'll awake, a rude awakening we'll come for me to that later. this morning but the, the sun was out it really we had a we had a group of ballers we had some real big hitters in the in the break it was guys who had been well waiting really biding their time throughout the year or, or just waiting to get an opportunity from their team and we had the cream really did kind of rise to the top in that group didn't it today i mean you've been tipping him every single day alberto betty and he finally delivered i was going to check your 18 today because you picked quite a lot of guys yeah, in that did, in that did break relatively well on a hard day to predict hard day to predict stage it was like a classic wasn't it when when those stages in the grand tour unfold Stage 18, longest of the race, as said, from Rovereto to Stradella. And we unfortunately had three non-starters this morning, Remco Evenepoel. Well, if you listen to James Knox's diary last night, he was pretty candid about Remco Evenepoel's state of physical and mental well-being, really, going into yesterday's stage. And, of course, then he had the crash in the stage, finished with a very swollen elbow. And, and James said in his audio diary last night that he didn't think Evenepoel would make it to Milan, that he didn't start today and we're going to talk a bit about that and about him in uh, the second part of tonight's podcast. Nick Schultz uh, also a non-star today he broke his hand in that crash and uh, he's been riding extremely well for bike exchange so that's a real blow for him and his team and Giulio Ciccone another big blow because he was riding high overall. Was he 10th at the start? He was. He was 10th. I mean he had, had a few setbacks including that crash yesterday but he was. it was a late decision on him to not start today's stage there was quite a battle to get in the breakaway and um, but eventually one did form 23 riders as you said daniel a lot of big hitters in there nickius aren't serial getter in breaks like that and they're quite good at finishing them off as well uh alberto bettio of course was there paddy bevan dario cataldo i'm just picking out some of the names here simone consoni um francesco gavazzi gork Izagiri, jacopo mosco mosca 
uh, pardon, Simon Pillow, of course, uh, Nicholas Roach was there, um, Diego Ulisi was there, Andrea Vendrami, already a stage winner, of course, was there. 23 riders in total, um, and about 20, well, th there'd been a little break uh, that went clear uh, at the impetus, really, of Alberto Bettiol, who was, who's been, he's been like, I don't know, a show pony, a, a, a caged animal, all Giro, he's, he's, he kind of struts into the mix zone in the mornings, and he looks very confident and, and bullish, and he's been on the attack a lot. And fresh-faced and strong, and um, we remarked on it, didn't we, in the car. Um, there's nothing frail about uh, Alberto Bettiol. Some of these climbers in particular come into the um, mix zone, and they sort of hobble in. As you say, um, Bettiol has, has fairly bounced in, and um, yeah, quite a different body shape to most of the riders we see nowadays. But he looked on the bike, he looked so strong. The Italian commentators kept saying, you know, how this is a uh, an Italian cycling expression. His legs look full. You know, he had a full leg. Well, um, he, he he had a full leg full of diamonds. Yes, um, but the, also yesterday, I mean, he was extraordinary yeah, yeah. helping Hugh Carthy. Well, mm. he's got limitless energy because that attack um, with six other five other riders uh, would have burnt a few matches and just after that Remy Cavagna went and th this was with 26 kilometers to go some quite tough climbs in the final 30 kilometers which really did make for an exciting finale and Cavagna we've seen him do that before he won a stage like that in the in the Vuelta a couple of years ago into Toledo didn't he um, very strong rider great time trialist so he quickly built a lead of 30 seconds and looked pretty good Nicholas Roach countered Bettiol went off uh, after him um, and uh, well Roach couldn't hold on to Bettiol when the road went up um, Bettiol was nibbling away at Cavagna's advantage whenever the road went up um, Cavagna was holding it or even increasing it on the flat but as soon as the road went up Bettiol was making gains and they caught him uh, near the summit with about 500 metres to go of the final climb today and that was just gave him enough time to um, to drop uh, Cavagna, who, who was just he was just wrung dry, he just couldn't hold on any longer, and Bettiol rode to the finish alone to take his first ever professional win in Italy and only his third professional win in total. One of those other wins, of course, is the Tour of Flanders a couple of years ago. So a quality rider who probably doesn't win as much as he should. And a beautiful route and a beautiful stage with those little kickers in the finale. And just before that, we went through Cremona, an important town in northern Italy. Important for cultural reasons, home of Italy's most famous influencer, uh, Chiara Ferragni. How many followers has she got, Lionel? Um, Lionel. Oh, um, how many Jan followers you just, have, just lost oh, one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I think I've lost she's one. way past 20 million. million did yeah. you say on Instagram? She, she um, is the female influencer Probably in the most Italy. famous woman in Italy now. For which, sure. Um, and she's married to uh, another massive influencer. Fedez. Yes. Uh, the pop star. Talking of pop stars and influencers of their day. Cremona, also the home, not where she was born, but um, the, the city most associated with Mina, the, the the tigress of Cremona, the biggest pop star, Italian pop star of the 60s and 70s. Um, author of the song, which is apt for Bettiol today, L'importante è finire. That was a song that was actually censored because there was, you know, there was a... Uh, double entendre there, which um, most people will probably be able to work out if they know a bit about Mina and also Cremona, the home of Stradivarius. Stradivarius, I'm not a really a very musical person. Um, Stradivarius violins. It's Stradivarius the, it's is, the, is the violin. It is the violin, but how do you pronounce it? Stradivarius. Yeah, Stradivarius. There you go. So I almost uh, you lost me there, but uh, back to the stage. Bettiol was Sorry, first. Richard. Simone, nice Con have a little Simone Consoni, a late charge to uh, nip past Nicholas Roach, who rode extremely well. We were remarking on this. I mean, you kind of forget about Roach sometimes, but he put in a very strong performance today. He finished third on the stage. Nikis Arndt, fourth. Diego Ulisi, fifth. No change overall. Bernal, Caruso and Yates, first, second and third. Sagan leads the Chiclamino jersey and looks likely to, to win that overall. And uh, likewise, Jeffrey Bouchard in the King of the Mountains jersey, his closest Rival is Egan Bernal, but looks pretty good to win that. Yes, Rich, that was the stage. I mean, we were woken, I was woken this morning after our little adventure, which we'll talk about later, by some extremely sad news. Um, well, for me and everyone who works on ITV's coverage at the Tour de France, um, a real titan of sports broadcasting in the United Kingdom, Steve Doherty, who's been responsible, directed the ITV Tour de France coverage for years, and um, died suddenly. Um, overnight and yeah it's difficult for me to 
express what a loss that is for all of us that work on um, ITV, but also anyone who's watched um, Tour de France coverage on ITV and Channel 4 before that over the last 20 or 30 years. Steve was, well, he was um, the, 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 the glue, it's a cliche, he was the person that really held it all together and also um, gave, whether it was me or Ned Bolting or a lot of the, the names and faces that people will be familiar with, he gave us all our opportunity and had a, had a reputation as a, as a tough boss, um, but an absolutely fantastic boss. And one of these people who really epitomized the sort of adage that discipline creates freedom and you know, had a great respect for the job and the profession. And it w wasn't about ego. It was about, again, um, his, his awareness of, of the, the, the audience's needs and what they were looking for from a TV program. So, yeah, it's been a, a hard day for, as I say, the likes of um, the likes of Ned, I know who's commentating on the Giro, and, and me, and Matt Rendell, and Dave Miller, and everyone who knew Steve. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink, on rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Thank you to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast and enabling Richard and Daniel to be in Italy to cover the Giro d'Italia. Super Sapiens founder Phil Sutherland is a type 1 diabetic, which means he has to manage his food intake and tailor the amount of insulin he needs on a daily basis. And he's learned over the years that exercise can help tremendously to strike that balance and reduce the amount of insulin he needs without having to deny himself the things that he likes to eat, in moderation, of course. Behind the science and technology, there's also an ethos at Super Sapiens that places exercise and activity at the heart of people's lives. Here's Phil. Like if you want to be there for your family, you know, riding a bike more, walking more, running more is going to allow you to maybe you miss an hour here, or five hours there, perhaps, but you're going to get years on the back end. But I don't want to create a boring society, a boring world. Right? I, I love you know, Mexican food. It's my it's my weakness. Right? Uh, chips, salsa, tacos, margaritas, the whole nine yards. You know, I, I know that if I if I go eat my favorite restaurant, I need 15, I do typically do four injections and 15 units of insulin to cover that meal. If I go ride my bike for two to three hours, I only need two units of insulin for that same meal. And so that was, okay, that's me, N equals one. We applied that with Todd Furneaux, uh, you know, president of Super Sapiens. And, you know, all my guys without diabetes, their glucose would go up to 190 with a sharp spike up, you know, creative lunches, we call them. And then a crash back down where when the crash comes back down relative hypoglycemia, they feel like crap. And Todd didn't like seeing that big spike. So he went out on a 10 mile run before the last time we did that creative lunch. And his glucose only went to 118 and then came back down. And then flashback to that 12 year old kid, right, who I rode a bike so that I could eat Snickers bars. So if, if you want cake, if you want candy, if you want, it's OK to want it. It's OK to have it. Just earn it. Physically, you're better. And then, two, you get to enjoy some of the finer things in life. And, um, you know, earning, earning your pleasure is uh, a great way to create a, you know, a more active society, which is very much the goal here um, at Super Sapiens. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We're very grateful indeed to them for their support. Um, now, chaps, the big story today really was the withdrawal of Remco Evenepoel um, because... So much hype has been generated by Evan Nepal since he, he began his career as a professional cyclist, I suppose, and there's a lot of expectation and a lot of uncertainty uh, around him coming into this, this Giro. Um, it was very strange that he didn't race for nine months before the Giro. He had an injury after a, a crash in Il Lombardia last year, um, but it was odd that he didn't do any race at all before riding the Giro. He rode very well in the opening time trial, didn't he? But... And he went close to the, the pink jersey. On one day, he was sprinting with, with Bernal for bonus seconds. Um, you know, really, he was really up there for the first 10 days or so, but um, has been on a sort of downward tra trajectory for the last week and uh, has, been, has been out of sorts, which we've not seen uh, in Avon Nepal before. 
and he's away home. Um, we'll hear an interview a bit later on from Tobias Foss, another young rider who's riding extremely well here. Um, he said, says in this interview that he, he feels sorry for Evenepoel, and I have to admit that I kind of feel sorry for him too because for all that he's a kind of quite a, quite a confident um, guy, um, I just I just sense uh, you know that that, that the Giro hasn't gone well for him, and that there's a there's a vulnerability there, and perhaps we've all been guilty of forgetting just how young he is. I, I the comparison I was making today to you guys in the car was my four year old boy. Uh, riding his bike and, and and being really confident one minute, falling off and taking a while to build his confidence back. That's maybe an unfair comparison, but nevertheless, I suppose I was reminded about what, what a young boy he still is. Yeah, for, for me, I, I really struggled understanding why they, they sent him to the Giro. And I'm not even, I'm not saying that in hindsight, but coming back from that type of injury being such a young rider and then I, I don't think they were very clear about whether they wanted him to race GC or not and for me just the, the idea of him racing GC in his first Grand Tour coming out of that type of injury was complete nonsense that did not make any sense to me at all and I, I don't know if they did it with PR purposes or, or, or whichever reasoning because they were quite cagey about that as well So and, and he's come out of this Giro in the worst possible way he's had the terrible experience here and and yeah i they, they must regret that to a very large degree yeah it, it is like you say brian easy to talk in hindsight and we were among those who were very excited about him making his giro debut so it would be maybe disingenuous to now turn around and say that we were completely against it all along but i do wonder whether um and perhaps this is understandable um our 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 old would-have-been travelling companion, Patrick Lefebvre, I wonder whether he got, and other people at the Koenig Quickstep, got caught up slightly in what has been the biggest talking point in cycling over the last year, and it's this new wave of precocity, of precocious young stars. And we've had Pogacar winning the Tour at 21. Prior to that, even Bernal winning the Tour at, was he 21? 22. Or 20, 22. And all of a sudden, it's become normal uh, to expect riders of that age to, you know, finish Grand Tours and compete to win Grand Tours, which, you know, let's not forget, three or four years ago was an alien concept. And, you know, I just think back of, of sort of blueprint precedents to this. If you go back, I mean, completely different riders, but you think of the way, for example, T-Mobile approached the first Tour de France with Mark Cavendish. You know, he would have been desperate to do the whole thing, and it was decided in advance that he was going to do... Um, 10 days or 8 days or whatever he did we did and the same with the Yates brothers yeah and it wasn't really it wasn't really up for debate and um, for some reason all of us have been guilty of completely recalibrating readjusting our expectations uh, to the extent that we we were expecting him to to compete to win this race we, we did uh, an episode of Clomp Zero in the first week um, on the subject of Evan Nepal and I spoke to people on other teams Matt White Xavier Atecha Ineos, and they all, they all said that um, you know, when I asked whether Evenepoel could win the Giro, um, they all said they couldn't quite say would not have brought him here if he wasn't ready. They they placed a lot of faith in the team to know that physically he was ready. Whatever reasons there were for him not racing remain un, unclear. Um, you know, there, there was I guess him returning at the Giro that it made it more of an event. You know, his, his comeback being at the Giro and. As the opening time trial showed, he, he was in good shape, and and I, I guess if if we evaluate it now, that that's a great pity. Um, he was in great shape, and he could have gone to other races and probably performed very well, and built his his confidence and his um, physical condition back a little bit more gradually than being thrown into this. And shoehorn his way back into racing in in a way that doesn't. Maybe I'm over exaggerating, but you know, tarnish his, his self perception of being in the peloton again. He could have done Romandy and he could probably have won it. He could have done Dauphiné next week and he could have been on the podium. I, I just don't understand the, the reasoning behind bringing him here to the, to, uh, to the Giro. And I think the way the team was set up around him, we see now it's, Almeida is potentially the best climber in the race right now. And he had to fall back and pick him up several times in the Montalcino stage. And I don't think it's. It's definitely not that he's not in shape to do a great result, that he was in great shape to do a result here, but he struggles in certain race situations, race situations that he's not familiar with. Long, difficult rainy descents, 
the gravel, all of that is completely new to him. And there would still be, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't know yet how he would fare in the, in the third week or in the high altitude, all of that. And I think doing that as a testing ground and then as, at the same time entertaining hope about him winning the bike race, that's, what, that's where it, it doesn't add up to me. Yeah, and I think we're all slightly, as outsiders, we're all concerned and uh, as onlookers when we see the Belgian media circus uh, around Evenepoel. And, you know, maybe as outsiders, we're better placed to judge it and to see how damaging or how difficult that could potentially be for him. Um, and, and again, I wonder how much influence that had on the Koenig Quicksteps decision-making, that, um, you know, they're almost being cajoled and urged to, to throw him into the fire, as, well, they have, as they have done. Since I've been here, I've talked to a few uh, of our colleagues from Belgium, and, and they aren't really getting, they haven't been getting a lot of access to him either. So, that, you know, if the idea was to feed him the exposure and, and being available to tell the story of him being at the Giro, they, it doesn't seem like they did a good job at that either. Listen, Brian, you're perfectly placed to comment on this because you were a team press officer for many years. Um, what is the... Well, you, Rich, were you going to chip in? No. Oh, no, sorry. I thought you were going to... Um, what was I going to say? Is there a slide remark It was going to be caustic. It was going to be caustic and it was going to be good. I so, can take um, it. Oh, so, no, no, no. Um, But, Brian... So the spectrum here, the parameters that we're talking about. So there was a famous case in British sport, David Beckham and oh, no, Ryan Giggs as well for Manchester United. Both of them were really deliberately, intentionally protected for, for several years, the first three or four years of their career. But then on the other hand, you have professional cycling that's always gloried in this, you know, this kind of open access, um, access all areas sort of, tradition that it's had which is changing it's changing also because of the pandemic and people get really upset and their, their their backs get up as soon as you start to take that away from them as soon as you start to take that away from the press you're, you're seen not only as making it hard for someone to do their job but you're seen as um sort of violating the heritage of the sport if you do that so so where is the happy medium would you say with what would you do in this situation well, i think the, the situation with remco and the belgian media is it's hard to generalize as a, use as a basis because I think he is he's mainstream media in Belgium he's not just an athlete he is everyone knows him in Belgium and I think in, I would make sure that he would relax being around the media That's the, the, it's not about the media in my job it wasn't that much about the media it was about making sure the athlete was comfortable and the more comfortable and relaxed he is in that situation the less he's going to be frustrated about the attention he gets the problem when someone has the the level in the public domain as Remco does, any anything he says will might potentially become a headline, not just in the sports section, but it, it's going to be mainstream news. So yeah, you have to you have to teach him and not wouldn't say protect him, just make him aware of that uh, scenario and, and and the causal links between what he says and what gets into newspaper. As a counterpoint to that, I mean, I was speaking to Renard Schotter of um, of Sports, uh, the big Belgian TV network, and and he said that. You know, often because the Belgian media is maybe being denied or not get, getting all the information about what's going on, they're filling in the gaps. And that's always a problem, isn't it? Um, but, but how far do you go in terms of giving a running commentary of everything that's happening with Remco, everything that's happening with the team? That's a difficult balance to strike as well, isn't it? For sure, for sure. I mean, there's, there's degrees and there's levels of, of transparency. And maybe they were also strategically, I mean, you, you'd kind of think that that the Koenig Quickstep would show up here with two captains, with Almeida, who's a fantastic bike rider in, in, a, in a three-week Grand Tour, at least, or a two-week Grand Tour, and Remco. So they, they might deliberately have been a bit cagey from a strategic point of view about how especially Remco was faring. But you could, I mean, it was quite telling on the Montalcino stage that Almeida did drop back to help him, which kind of ruined his, he lost time there. He, he, he lost two minutes that day on Bernal and others, and he obviously lost six minutes on the... Uh, Sestola stage, surprisingly, you know, without that mishap, he'd he'd be right up there and and potentially with a chance of winning the race. You know, he's only 22, which we kind of forget as well because he had this breakthrough last year, and he's going to come out of this Giro with his stock having risen, and he. Without that two-minute loss, he may well have a fighting chance for the podium over this but weekend. But he's leaving the team. But he's leaving the team. It would still be a great result for them. Yeah, I don't I don't really understand the debacle of teams not wanting riders who are leaving to produce a great result they're still on the payroll they're still wearing the jersey they still represent the sponsors so it to me it's nonsense not bringing the best team but rich 
you know, you well, you've already alluded to what a steep learning curve it is, and well, the interviews you mentioned earlier, we're going to hear now, really underline that that for most riders, it's a uh, it's um, trial and error over several years to get things of like economy of effort right, and even as we'll hear from Attila Valta, former Pink Jersey, things like media engagements, media um, media obligations, and. Um, well, Foss, Tobias Foss of Jumbo Visma and Attila Valta, they've both ridden high in this Giro d'Italia. Foss might still finish in the top 10. Attila Valta was in the pink jersey for three days. And yeah, should we hear from them now about their respective Giri and, um, as I said, uh, sort of learning how to manage and deal with and tackle a Grand Tour? I think we hear first from Foss and then from Valta. You're ninth on general classification. Um, Ciccone's out. He was 10th. I mean, is that your objective now to, to keep inside that top 10? Is that a real goal for the next few days? Yeah, for, uh, for us uh, as a team as well, uh, that's uh, one of the object- objectives. Uh, we also want to try to go for the st- stage wins with, uh, with the other guys uh, from a breakaway. And I think there's uh, some nice uh, opportunities. But for me, yeah, it's, uh, it's all about uh, going full gas and, and, and actually... This Giro is, is, will be my first uh, real uh, whole uh, Grand Tour, so to me, uh, I, I really want to have the experience of going full gas every day and and then can do an evaluation after to see what I have to develop to become uh, uh, even further up. But uh, but uh, a top 10 is really nice and I really want to achieve it, so I will go uh, full gas uh, the last two days now and then uh, see. It's a bit of a generalisation about Norwegian riders and maybe because you don't look like a climber, but people might assume that you have benefited from it being cold and wet in this Giro. Is that true? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, like you say, I'm also a bigger climber. So, yeah, I'm also actually quite uh, happy and proud of myself uh, in the way I rode, for example, yesterday in, in a climb that really does suit uh, a big rider. But uh, but for sure, uh, I, I grow up uh, riding a lot of hours in, in, the, in the cold and in the, in the wet. So... So, yeah, I, I don't mind uh, the cold and I can cope with it uh, quite well, uh, luckily. Tell me how you've been feeling the last few days and what's your sort of overall assessment of the, what, the last three or four stages? I felt pretty empty, uh, especially yesterday. Uh, I think uh, that was because uh, the rest day. I hope so. Uh, yeah, can't wait uh, for my next Grand Tour to figure out... Uh, uh, to approach the rest day with a, with a different uh, method because uh, that didn't work out for me. I rested too much, uh, not training enough. And Sleep all day, did you try to? Yeah, of course I went to, for a bike ride, but super easy, super short. So I paid it off yesterday because uh, neither the power and neither the heart rate was high, but I felt empty. I, I was suffering all day. I dropped uh, already the, the first, uh, first category climb where it was still quite big bunch, so I should be there. Um, but before was was quite okay. I think I I'm I'm happy. Uh, I'm I think uh, a step forward compared to last year. Uh, last year was much more days like yesterday, and um, yeah, I'm always finish quite in the front around top 20, top 30. So my goal was to to fight and maybe reach top 10, which now seems uh, of course uh, not realistic. But uh, unless you get in a break. Yeah, I, I, I still uh, have three days to prove that uh, I'm here in this race. But uh, yeah, I try to not stress too much because this Giro gave already much, much more me than I expected. So uh, yeah, I try to enjoy my way until Milan. And obviously, the you know, the day you had, was it one or two days in the pink jersey? Um, three, three. Three, three, sorry. Um, do you feel now that mm, did that cost you any energy? Just the you know the excitement and the positive emotion. Do you think? Yeah, I think uh, depends on the rider, but for me, I think it cost a lot because uh, it was really hard to sleep, uh, really a lot of stuff to do, and it was completely different than uh, than anything else. So. I admire the riders like uh, Yao uh, for last year, for 15 days, it's really taking a lot of energy, doping test every day and the media every day. And like for now with Bernal, uh, it's also different. Uh, the rest day is not a rest day. You you have to do a lot more things, uh, media and stuff like that. So yeah, for me it cost uh, I think pretty much, but 
it's something that was for sure worth to to do it and it's a nice experience for the future also we always hear in grand tours that it's about it's about who loses the least who gets the least tired who ends up being the best i mean how much in terms of percentage if i looked at your power files how much of a difference is there now between now and the start of the race when you were really flying uh not pretty much for me uh depends on the days um yesterday for sure was was quite far uh my power yesterday was was something i can do every day on the training or even more easily so this shows how hard is the grand tour um but uh, i was not losing too much power in the days uh, also last year i can do pretty much the same every day it just depends on the other riders like uh even on the training i cannot do what bernard is doing so this uh, over 6 watts per kilo for half an hour is something really hard so it's still i, I have to reach first in the trainings uh, on a daily basis and then i can try to do it on the race so i'm closer to the front than last year but still uh, uh, have to train a lot to to get uh, to those power those numbers like uh, bernard has and just finally Attila, we potentially got some good news for you in the last few days well we've heard rumors about Hungary being back in the race to maybe hold the start next year or the year after have you heard anything yeah I've heard also rumors but I think uh, it's no time for me to to tell them it would be a great development for you though wouldn't it I think uh, already last year was a super nice idea but I hope uh, even if we will have that uh, yeah it will be even better the the city Budapest is it is just beautiful so I really hope that uh, the rumors are true The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport Science in Sport fueled by science Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport, our sponsor. Um, you can get 25% off your Science and Sport products at scienceandsport.com with the code SISCP25. Still time to enter our competition as well. Go to the cyclingpodcast.com and our competition in collaboration with Science and Sport to win £80 worth of Science and Sport goodies. Um, well, if you predict, if you successfully predict the winner of Sunday's stage. You will be put in a hat, and if your name's picked out, you'll win that um, fantastic prize. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. I imagine a lot of people will be picking Filippo Ganna, and uh, tomorrow's Kilometer Zero is on the subject of Filippo Ganna. Mainly, um, it was hijacked a little bit by Victor Campenarts, who I called yesterday. He withdrew from the race, unfortunately. Um, but he was so interesting um, on lots of things that he features quite heavily in this episode about Filippo Ganna. Um, anyway, that's uh, coming up tomorrow. Oh, Rich, good morning. <laughs> Promise me an adventure, Daniel. We've driven through challenge. A challenge. We've driven through yeah the mystery challenge. We've driven through the rush hour traffic, trying to. Ra- quite surprised at how much traffic there was where are these people going they're not coming here that's for sure there's only there are only two lunatics here <laughs> well do you know what awaits you rich i've given you a, li- a little briefing well you told me it's a very steep road europe's steepest road well it's been described as the hardest climb in the world um on on tarmac that is possible um feasible on a road bike the via scanupia in um Bezzanello. This is this has become legendary on forums and um, and message boards over the years, over the last ten or fifteen years. A mythical place of some of, of kind of masochistic pilgrimage. Well, I can confirm it's not mythical. It's real. We're here. We're at the we're at the foot of it, and I can see a sign up there that says forty five. Forty is that forty five percent? Forty five percent. Average gradient, I think seventeen point is it seventeen point eight. Um, percent over 7.5 kilometers um do you think you'll make it to the summit let's go <laughs> Woo. well rich you survived the ordeal 
I don't know what was harder going up or coming down. Actually, I, you, I, I do. thought you were going to say, I wonder what all the fuss was about then. No, no, no. What I'm frustrated about is that the photographs and videos don't do it justice. I keep taking pictures. This road is so unbelievably steep. It's almost as if, I mean, I wouldn't take the car up there. Well, we couldn't, could we? We tried. We well, we did the first few hundred meters, or um, and we had to park up um, a bit like a rickety little panda or something did come down the hill. I don't know where it had come from, or it must be built up there. I don't see how (laughs) there's a Fiat factory on the top of the (laughs) on the top of the mountain. What is at the top? Well, I don't know. And I'm really intrigued by these little shrines at the side of the road. Every about fifty meters or so, it seems like they go all the way up. Obviously, we didn't get to the top, unfortunately, but um, it felt like every three hundred meters to me. Well, I've been checking the rankings again, Rich, since we got down, and the, the general consensus is that it's either the hardest um, or second hardest climb in Italy. Maybe the on one ranking, well, only in Italy, well on one ranking, it's the second hardest in the world. These things, it depends on whether you whether you weight it more towards steepness or length, but it's definitely in the top five in the world i would say what's coming something oh there's a lorry going up now no it's not there's, no. there's some kind of cement works or mine at the bottom but we will find out more about la via scanopia i hope and the history of it and well i have to say daniel the the surface is horrible it's like sort of concrete um it, it's like porridge almost it's very uneven and it would be a very unpleasant experience to ride a bike up there would a race ever go up there i mean I certainly not I certainly not no. certainly not and you couldn't ride down because you'd have to take your pumps your plimsolls in a bag and you'd have to walk there's down there's a car coming oh my god what? where on earth are they going what do they think they're doing there's a car coming the other way as well but you better go Well, Daniel, that was uh, quite an adventure this morning, wasn't it? You enjoyed it? it, didn't you? I detected some enjoyment there. You detected some enjoyment. I got a message from, uh, do you remember Lionel Burney? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, he's here. He's sitting opposite. Us. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, remember Lionel, yeah. remember Lionel Burney? Um, he messaged me um, to say, because he saw some of your video footage of this, and he said, you're really getting to grips with the GoPro. How did Daniel put that slow-mo effect on the footage of you running? <laughs> well, good. Rich, we did say, didn't we, um, <coughs> that we wanted to find out more about this road, why it was built, why it was there, who went up it, whether we were allowed to even go up it. And, and we were very fortunate, weren't we, because as we were concluding our adventure, as we mentioned there, there were a couple of... A couple of motor vehicles appeared out of nowhere, and in one of them was a gentleman called Battisti Vinicio, who happens to, happens to be the president of the Via Scanupia committee for the, the boss of the road. Yeah, he for the promotion the and maintenance of the road. Wow. And, um, and I what spoke are the to, chances? And I spoke to Battisti. It's amazing you bump into the Giro. The road exists simply because there are various houses up there on the mountain where people used to spend their holidays and weekends, particularly to escape the heat in the summer. It was also a logging road. So one day, everyone who had a property up there agreed that it would be easier and less dangerous if we could get up there with cars. So we had this cement road laid. My predecessor's president also decided to build the little shrines at the side of the road as a sign of gratitude because, as dangerous as it was, fortunately we'd never had accidents. So it became a kind of via crucis. The road was pretty unknown, but I think words started to get around on the internet and cyclists started coming. It was becoming notorious, a sort of place of dark pilgrimage. So eventually bikes had to be banned, because it's too dangerous to descend. I think bikes have been banned for eight or ten years now, which is not to say people don't try to sneak up. One or two even make it to the top, generally on electric bikes. At the summit there's just a mountain hut that belongs to the provincial administration and where cows are kept in summer. They'll be taking the cows up there soon. I've got a bike symbol on my sweatshirt because when they were about to ban bikes for good, I organised a race, a mountain time trial, as a kind of last hurrah. Unfortunately, it was the first and last edition. No less than the president, Daniel, the president of the road. I mean, what are the odds that he'll be on that road? Amazing. <laughs> um, well, we were, it was, you wanted us to take bikes there, and it's just, well, we didn't, or he would have... Per- yeah, we would have been arrested. We'd arrest. been in the clink tonight. We would, we would, Brian would have been doing this podcast on his own. <laughs> oh, dear God. I mean, it probably been better, to be I, fair. But I, I did find, I, I found out a little bit more about the climb, where it goes. Um, it was 
so the the castle we I'll saw. I'll tell you where it goes. It goes straight up. Yes, <laughs> the castle we saw, Rich, the Castello Bezzino. It belonged to a, a noble Austrian family, the Conti Trap family in the mid 16th century, and they wanted. The, the plateau, so where the road leads to, they wanted that plateau for hunting and uh, as a place to sort of retreat to in the summer. And um, hence some sort of r fairly rugged, rudimentary path was created, which, as we heard there, was not, not tarmac, cemented. Well, yeah, um, it was gloopy centuries and like porridge, as I said, it was slapped on the side of the hill. And it, was a very un it would have been very unpleasant on a bike. Um, we, you posted a video of me running up the hill. That was running, um, and well, that I mean, the, the, what the, we the what we call running in the, the, the English the steepness English of language. the climb is not really apparent in the video. So if I look a bit not so light on my feet, that's that's kind of why um, gravity. I sh gravity, simple. If I, I should say as well, Daniel, that um, on the rest day as well as our press uh, conference episode released as a podcast, we have the last two rest days also recorded a separate little video 10 minutes long just under 10 minutes long answering some of your written questions uh, you may have missed that but you'll find it on youtube um if you go to the cycling podcast channel on youtube you'll find it there i need to uh, i mentioned um lionel burney remember lionel um i mentioned him earlier he has been busy um well he's been busy doing lots of things but he's been busy making an episode of explore which is about to return with a vengeance because He's off on his tour of Scotland soon, and that will be a series for Explore. But he's done a, an initial one-off episode of Explore, which will be out next week. So that'll be like your, your methadone after the Giro finishes on Sunday. Talking of questions, Richard, we had a bit of an open question that required an answer after the podcast yesterday, because we were talking about Damiano Caruso, um, second in the Giro, of course, uh, Sicilian. We talked about his dad having worked as a sort of bodyguard or in the police that was guarding, protecting the judge, uh, Giovanni Falcone, who was assassinated in 1992 in Sicily. Um, Damiano Caruso was in the mix zone this morning, and I... And I, I asked him a little bit more about that. And he said, yes, his dad did work um, in that role, he thought between about 1987 and 1990. And I also mentioned yesterday, it was the anniversary the other day of Falcone's assassination. And Caruso said, yeah, it's a really, really important day for him and um, a, a kind of emotional day for him as well because he's very attached to Sicily. He knows that... The reputation of Sicily is often, unfortunately, synonymous with the, the Mafia, unfairly often. But um, he says that it's important to remind young people of the sacrifice those particular two judges, Borsellino and and um, Falcone, made. And Eve, you know, the power of the Mafia has weakened considerably over the last couple of decades. It's largely thanks to the work that those two judges did. He also talked a little bit about cycling in the, in the mix zone this morning. Um, what did he say about that? I can't that? really remember what he said about that. <laughs> we were talking about media access and transparency. Isn't it fantastic that you have a, a such an interesting character in the bike race that's able to ex you know, talk about something that's so serious and has been so significant in the modern Italian history? Yeah, and I said to Rich as well that he's 33 now, Caruso, and there's a real sense, you, you get this every now and again, there's a real consciousness of the fact that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him because Lander crashed out it's a once-in-a-lifetime result thus far and um, you know no one's he's not he's not in a rush to sort of get back to the bus in the morning he's gonna live it he's gonna experience it he's gonna cherish it and that is that is nice to see but that comes with maturity doesn't it yes let's hear from our audio diarist shall we James Knox of the current quick step just sent in his dispatch from today's stage stage 18 the longest stage of this Giro done it was a pretty long day, in fairness. Fight for the break. And then when that was gone, thankfully I had Remy in there, the man we wanted to get in. We would have liked to have had two guys, maybe uh, Elio, Mikkel, myself, or Seri also. But yeah, in the end, Remy showed everyone why he was the man to be in there, put in a strong performance in typical TGV, Cavagna style. But it wasn't to be, but hats off to him. I think he needed that, being in the room with him. Like to get his own chances and stuff, so yeah, that was uh, yeah, shame he couldn't pull that one off, but also sounds like Betty All was flying, and I think we've seen how strong he's been this year, also. So, yeah, here's what it is. Yeah, from my perspective, not a whole lot to talk about. Somewhere a little bit south of Milan now, um, nice warm evening, sat outside, having a bit of a chat. All the staff are out having a beer, 
and yeah, the stages from Rovereto, a little bit south of Trento, all the way down across the the Po Valley, across the Po River, down to Stradella, I think it was called. Yeah, we had pretty flat, straight roads for the majority of the day, and then uh, yeah, pretty bumpy, tight, technical last 35k to finish. Wasn't really overly contested behind. Of course, the breakaway was 25, 20 minutes ahead. Um, but yeah, if it had been a all-out race, then it would have been a, a different outcome. I mean, as for the race itself, UAE were pretty determined to get Lucy in there. They managed that, um, and then were sort of yeah doing their best to shut down anything else that went across. Obviously, Ineos were happy to see a move go, so they were happy to shut it down. And yeah, I think Sagan seemed very happy just to. Make sure a break went without, uh, what's he called, the bloke at Israel, forgotten his name, Chimalai, or oh, Gaviria, and then, yeah, shut it down also. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly an exciting day for the fans from uh, the main group of favourites. You know, proper breakaway day, way up the road, people seem to get this more in the Giro than any other race. But, um, yeah, uh, it did feel great, actually, never really... Never really got into it, but you get that. I guess when you just getting it done, ticking down the case, it was a it was a long way. It was a long way, so yeah, sort of had a good chat, caught up with a few people, minced around, had a bit of a laugh, um, and then yeah, there was a little bit of a fight for position and make sure no one did it, tried anything at the end, and we all finished safely in the bunch. But yeah, it was lovely warm weather. That was nice. Had the sleeves rolled up, tried to get a little tan, might get the tan lines ready, or even them out, should I say. Yeah, that's about it, really. I mean, last year, obviously, we didn't do the the even longer Stage 19, and I, I do think these long days in a Grand Tour potentially unproductive. Uh, you know, they have, definitely have the place in cycling, all the classic monument distance stuff is, you know, it shows the best rider on the day, but... Um, when it's just a case of uh, letting a break go and riding it in and no one's got any motivation to do anything because there's a team, you know, you're not, no one's really strong enough to control for 230 kilometers, especially if every man and his dog's determined to get in the break, then yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really make the most interesting race. I think if you, I know I don't want to annoy anyone because I'm whinging again, but um, that today's race, had it been 100k shorter, or even 50k shorter, you know, maybe some teams had uh, kept it together or tried to bring it back and exploded the race on the final circuit, we would have seen a completely different race, but uh, having it at 230 kilometers or even more, 233, kind of changes that a lot, you know? Big day out, everyone's saving for what's to come, and yeah, some riders have lost, sorry, some teams have lost riders and etc, etc, so yeah, is what it is. I was just happy to get it done. Saved the legs a little bit. Um, I reckon we've got a big couple of days with Joao. Trying to go for a stage win, trying to do something this Giro. Obviously, Remy can also put in a show on the final time trial. Joao also. But, uh, yeah, I think we're determined to come out with something from this Giro. We tried again today. And we've only got three more chances, so... Best. Buckle up and do our best. And, yeah. That's about it. We went through some nice vineyards there in the end. It was actually really beautiful. Don't know what wine that is. Um, but yeah, beautiful scenery. Lovely winding roads. Freshly paved surfaces for the Giro. Nice little pink line through the middle of the road up for UK at one point. And that's it. Stage 18. Finally getting a little bit nearer to Milan now. Well, chaps, uh, Daniel, your final podcast of the Giro, this. That is true, Richard. Um, so it's a, it's a fond farewell to you tonight, but um, you were busy this morning in the mix zone, weren't you? I was. Well, I caught up with, not today's stage winner, because that would have been extraordinary if I'd, you know. Um, although, I already did a post-race interview was, with, was, although did you notice that Betiol, he was on he was on Italian TV, on Processo alla Tappa, which is a studio programme. It's not like a post-race interview. He was on there sitting on the couch, and the peloton still had 20 kilometres still to <laughs> ride today. It was amazing. Yeah, amazing. I mean, he was ordering up an Aperol spritz and, you know, little <laughs> I mean, pizzette. He has been, he has looked just so relaxed, this whole Giro. And I was speaking to Charlie Bagalius the other day, and I remarked on this as he 
got on the bus, I, I said, Betty looks really good. And Charlie, in that very dry way of his, just said, he's a very good cyclist. It's funny, he gives the impression, Betty Ol, of being very relaxed and very comfortable in his own skin. But I don't think that is the reality. I mean, earlier this year, he had real problems with colitis, which he has talked about at some length, and he says it's psychosomatic, and it, it's a result of stress. And, um, you know, he's got a coach, Leonardo Piepoli, who people might be familiar with um, for, for savoury and less savoury reasons, um, a rider in the, well, the, the, the noughties. And Piepoli... The appropriately named noughties. Yeah, the very noughties. And Piepoli, when he, whenever he gives interviews about Betiol, he, he talks about tearing his hair out because Betiol, by all accounts, is a difficult guy to train. Um, sometimes he's, I mean, I don't think there's any suggestion that he's in nightclubs every night or, you know, he's a drinker or, or whatever else. But in terms of following a training... You just said he was drinking a, a, well, an Aperol spritz. spritz five minutes after the stage. But in terms of, of following training plans and, you know, doing exactly what is prescribed, I think he has difficulties with that. It's quite beautiful how he dedicated the stage to his now uh, deceased manager Mauro Battaglini was a very important figure for a lot of big Italian bike riders uh, he was also I think for a couple of decades the manager of, of Mario Cipollini and when he when he pointed towards the skies as he crossed the finish line that, that was to to salute him and, and uh, I was doing a little bit of research and this where we're sitting right now is apparently where where he spent his last years he was apparently uh, quite sick for a while Mauro Battaglini and I came across him as well and I negotiated a contract with uh, Daniele Benati, and he talked about him at length as well at the at the Processo della Tappa after the stage today. I, th I really think it's a beautiful. Sometimes managers in cycling are vilified, and sometimes rightfully so. But when someone wins their first Giro stage and and, and does it in the name of their former manager, that it says a lot about that special bond they must have had. I think he's relaxed because he knows he's in such terrific form. Yes. You know, that's that's that what explains happens, ev everything. Yeah. Um, but you did speak to another rider who's obviously in great form this morning, Dan Martin. Yes, Dan Martin, I almost forgot. I, I mentioned him about 10 minutes ago and I was about to introduce well, Dan Martin. Well, you were Martin. talking about Betty being a, yes. a, a regular shape. Dan Martin, as I studied him this morning when you were speaking to him, just, he's just skin and bone and veins. You could he? fit three Dan Martins in an Alberto Betty couldn't could. you? Um, anyway, yesterday completed Dan's collection of stage wins in major tours, in the three major tours. I know you're not an Alan Partridge fan, Daniel, um, but there's a very famous Alan Partridge scene where he's trying to grab the attention of Are somebody called Dan. Are we ever going to get to this interview with Dan, Dan Martin? And there's a very, very is. funny scene where he's shouting, Dan, Dan, Dan. And I actually recorded you this morning right. uh, trying to get We're Dan not Martin's hear that, attention. So let, let's hear that first and then we'll hear Dan Martin. <laughs> There's Dan. Dan! 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 Dan? 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 Well done on yesterday. Uh, we talked earlier in the year about completing this collection of Grand Tour stage wins. Um, how much uh, is that an extra satisfaction on top of the way you pulled it off yesterday? Oh, it just means I don't have to come back, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean... Once I got into the break yesterday, I kind of knew that that was my big opportunity yet. And for the next few stages, I don't think it's going to be Friday and Saturday. I think it'll be decided by the GC contenders. And obviously, we have a chance that day as well. But yesterday was a big opportunity, but the, obviously that headwind almost scuppered it. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, to put it off in that fashion, I really didn't expect it. I, I expected to get caught, but I just thought I kind of kept my tempo and kept my focus and, yeah, managed to do it. So, yeah, it still doesn't... It still feels kind of surreal, but it's. Uh, I mean, that's because that's the nature of a stage race. You have to stay focused and and get and think about today already. You know, you don't really reflect on what you've done until you get get home. When you see the time gaps, you're on the climb. It's one twenty or whatever. Logic states that you're going to get caught because you've been out front all day. I mean, how much were you holding back, and how much also are you paying attention to the time gaps there? Are you are you asking for them constantly, or do you try and shut them out? I was getting as much information as possible because I knew the I knew the climb. I knew that I needed to get to the top of the steep part before the. Uh, without them catching me and then I could really open it up over the top because I knew the attacks would kill, would, would hurt them and uh, hurt the guys behind and once you got into the red on a climb like that you don't recover so uh, yeah I was monitoring the gap and trying to I knew I needed 20-30 seconds with 3k to go and uh, so yeah but at that point as well it's just a time trial you know there's no I was just pacing myself and it wasn't it, there's was no real 
I couldn't really affect if they were going to catch me or not. It was just me monitoring my effort. So you've completed that collection. What's you know? What's the next thing to tick off before you ride off into the sunset? I don't know. I mean, we're not far off the top ten now, so we'll just see what happens in the next few days. Obviously, I need somebody to blow up rather than me take time. But uh, yeah, I don't think obviously finishing top ten in all three Grand Tours that's, that could be the next thing, and then we can uh, we can leave the race really happy. That's what we came here to do. So yeah, we'll see. Well, that was Dan. That was Dan. Dan. Dan Martin. You also spoke at the finish to Matt White, who well, I imagine is uh, rubbing his hands, is he? He sounded quietly Shipper. confident. He sounded very quietly confident um, about how Simon Yates is going. <laughs> Unfortunately, they've lost Nick Schultz mm. uh, with, a, I think, a, a broken, broken hand, hand yeah. after the crash yesterday on the stage to um, Sega de Ala. And that weakens them considerably, but... Well, you'll hear here, Matt's not giving too much away, but I got the sense they're pretty optimistic about what they might be able to do tomorrow at Alperimera. I mean, just talk to us a bit about Simon's health and form and how it's kind of changed and progressed over the last few days. Well, I'm not going to say too much, that's for sure. Uh, we're in a good place and uh, there's still a lot of climbing to come uh, and that, that starts tomorrow. Even though the stage has obviously been changed, it's still a pretty pretty tough final, uh, final climb to the line tomorrow. And then obviously we've got long climbs the, the day after. Not as, not as steep, but uh, there's a lot of metres of climbing on, on Saturday as well. So it'd be an interesting couple of days and uh, we're certainly in a better place than we were five days ago. We said yesterday there's blood in the water after Bernal last time yesterday and everyone's maybe got a bit of a sniff of it. Would you agree with that? Oh, I think all we saw yesterday was that he is human uh, and he, he's been the best climber here no one has been able to challenge him on any climb so far in the race and yesterday was the first time that he that he showed any, any type of weakness at all so it was one day everyone can have a good day and a bad day uh, it wasn't his best but uh, he's had six or 16 days before that pretty good going pretty good so he's he's got to manage the next couple of days just as we do you were able yesterday to be quite aggressive and use the team and really well you you worked very hard You've lost Nick Schultz now. Um, are you still in a position? Are the guys in good enough form, guys like Kanga, to be able to be aggressive tomorrow? Well, that's that's presuming that we're going to be aggressive. Uh, look, we're in a good place. Uh, it's unfortunate to, to, to lose Nick, but at the end of the day, it could have been a lot worse. He's uh, broken a bone in his hand, but uh, the, the, the speed that those guys crashed yesterday, we're just happy that he's uh, that he's not seriously hurt. Uh, and Mikel also crashed as well, so that put a bit of a dent in our in our plan to bring the break back and, and to win the stage yesterday. But at the end of the day, uh, we also wanted to test our rivals coming out of the rest day and uh, and test them. We did. Well, that was Matt White. Maybe we'll be hearing more from him over the weekend. Who knows? I mean, who knows? It's, it's we've got a tantalising race in prospect, but somebody who's going to be missing it is Daniel. Daniel leaving just when it's yes. getting interesting. Yes, Rich, I am. Um, I will be reserving judgment until the last day as far as like wine glass racing this Giro um, is concerned. Brian has start, started to talk me talk me round, um, getting my uh, exert a sort of... It's not like Brian to talk you into an extra wine glass. <laughs> <laughs> you can always count on me yes. for that. No, yeah. I'm all, yeah, I think it's also a personal ambition of mine to to make you feel happy about this. Uh, just make you happier. Yeah. yeah. In general, yeah. 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 Just generally Well, um, I must say... Um, it's been a it's been a cracking two and a half weeks, almost three weeks. Rich, yeah, um, it's been great. It's been a real adventure. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed the race. I've enjoyed what we've done on the fringes of the race, on the margins of the race, um, and very grateful for all the support and all the lovely messages we've had from our listeners. And um, yeah, it's been a real privilege. I mean, we've. Over the last year or so, when we have been able to travel, we're very mindful of the fact that most people can't travel at the moment. And, you know, you might see us taking pictures of these incredible locations and, um, and you know, these incredible adventures that we're enjoying. And that's not to show off. That is because we are very, very grateful that we're able to do that. And that's thanks to the listeners. You actually feel a bit more of a responsibility to do that, I think. Exactly. Um, yeah. Remind, I think people vicariously enjoy um, certainly watching the race, you know, and, 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 and seeing these beautiful and there were some beautiful pictures today as the riders the bunch went through the vineyards um snake through the vineyards it was lovely and that's that's kind of what we watch bike racing for isn't it it's a celebration of life oh, oh beautiful. beautiful oh the podcast is in safe hands yeah here. more of that to Daniel. come over the next couple of days, days is going to be amazing 
We're going to lift it to a new level, Brian. Uh, well, Brian will be joining me for the next couple of days. I thought since Daniel's going, we'd say a few more thank yous, because we don't probably do this often enough, but um, a few thank yous to people, and we'll do this again on Sunday, but Lionel Bernie has been a huge help this Giro, you know, behind the scenes and helping out with lots of things to do with the podcast. Um, and, of course, you'll be hearing Lionel again from next week. Um, David Luxton, uh, always very helpful as well in running all uh, things podcast-related. Alistair Lloyd-Jones has really helped us enormously this Giro too. Make a bit more of a splash on social media. I hope you've been enjoying the social media stuff. Um, he's put together a little team. Eva, Hope and Stephanie all uh, have been a fantastic help as well. And then there's our incredible team of producers. John Mooney, who's been with us since 2013 um, and still uh, still working with us. Very grateful to him. To Adam Bowie, Will Jones, Tom Wally and Hugh Owen, who's the latest uh, member of their production team. Thanks very much to all of them. And the podcast wouldn't be delivered every night without without them and they do a great job so thanks very much but biggest thanks tonight to Daniel thank you Daniel it's been wonderful what a what a, what a journey what a trip don't lurch <laughs> into sarcasm I'm not I'm being sincere <laughs> okay. I'm being sincere thank you Richard it's been good thanks Brian of course